Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, High Truth listeners. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and I am sure you're going to enjoy and gain insights with today's episode. I'm your host, Dr. Roni Lev. Let me read to you some headline news from August 2021. California wants to become the first state to pay drug addicts to stay sober. And here's another one. How California looks to pay drug addicts to stay sober. What do you think of those headlines? And let me share my thoughts. Number one, headlines like to shock. Otherwise, people may not read on. So in that sense, it captures the reader. Number two, The authors have not received the memo that calling people drug addicts is using stigmatizing language. For the sake of drama, the authors threw out all the important work being promoted not to stigmatize people who have a chronic, relapsing, but treatable disease of the brain. Number three, what they're really talking about is an evidence-based medical treatment called contingency management. But then, People would not read an article with a headline of California wants to promote contingency management to treat people with methamphetamine use disorder. It doesn't have the same shock value. So what is contingency management? It is an incentive-based system used to change behavior. It has proven to show a large positive effect for treatment in drug programs. Incentives can be vouchers, prizes, or privileges to reward behaviors such as compliance with medications, negative drug screens, or showing up for an appointment. Listen to episode number 46 with Dr. Richard Rawson or episode number 63 with Dr. Brian Hurley to learn more about contingency management. Medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine helps save lives of people with an opiate use disorder. But there is no FDA-approved medication to treat methamphetamine use disorder, which is a much larger addiction issue on the West Coast than opiates. So what does work for methamphetamine or stimulant use disorder? It is contingency management. 
a proven effective method that's been used in the VA for many years. It is much more effective than any medication. And in the long run, it can save a lot of money. So yes, I support California paying drug addicts to stay sober, but that's just a very rude way of saying I support California using contingency management to treat methamphetamine use disorder. I support it because it's the gold standard medical treatment for methamphetamine use disorder, and it will save a lot of methamphetamine-related healthcare costs. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. My name is Victoria Groisberg, and I'm a medical student at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Dr. Painter's course has provided so much incredible insight into substance use disorders and has really opened my eyes to the struggles of those that experience substance use disorders. People who have a substance use disorder may be in denial of their problem. So what is the best way to approach such a situation as a healthcare provider or as a friend? As a medical student, I have seen patients at the UCSD Free Clinic who have suffered from substance use disorders. And sometimes these patients just don't know who to turn to and may be in denial of their problem. I believe that the best way to approach such a situation as a healthcare provider is to provide patients with access to a peer support group for substance use disorders. This would allow the patients to share about their struggles in a safe space, an environment where they do not feel ashamed or scared to share about the challenges that they face with others that they can really relate to. I believe that patients would greatly benefit from a peer support network that could help them relate to others with a substance use disorder identify their own symptoms, and find the support network and sense of acceptance by others that deep down they were seeking. And then patients could seek and obtain the treatment that they need. Thank you, Victoria. I hear leadership and advocacy in your voice and I love it. Let's get an answer to your question from a man with lived and professional experience. Dominique McDowell is Director of Substance Abuse Homeless Services in Marin City Health and Wellness Clinic, which is near San Francisco. He has experience with medication-assisted treatment programs, contingency management programs, relapse prevention, addiction counseling, harm reduction, and teaches anger management and conflict resolution. You can find Dominique McDowell's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dominique McDowell, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lev. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm graciously uh, thankful. You know. I, I've been looking forward to having a second opportunity to have a conversation with you. You did such an amazing job at the Western States Conference talking about stimulants disorder. So I was really looking forward to, to have an opportunity to, so we could chat again. And I think you have so much to teach me as a physician and, and teach our High Truth listeners and family members and clients who may be struggling um, so I thought we could start with your really impactful personal story as a man um, who had addiction to now a professional in addiction treatment. Uh, yeah, uh, I'll give you a real quick short version. Uh, I come from a family of uh, suffering, sufferers. Uh, father was an opiate addict, mom was an opiate addict. So I was born into real tragedy. You know, I was born in, in a NICU, uh, opiates in my system. So you know, the, the odds were against me from birth, you know, so I feel that way. Uh, I had a lot of years from, I think, 1984 up until 89, struggling with cocaine addiction. Uh, at 89, I, I found myself trying to get my life in order for a year or two, but that didn't work because I tried my own devices without any support. And then uh, 
I think I finally got clean January 7th, 1999 at probably 10, 10 a.m. I can remember the time, my, my last use. And uh, that was the last journey back to prison. And uh, so I've, I've done the whole California tour of every prison. So I've, I've visited a lot of places. <laughs> and I've seen a lot of things. But I think it was, you know, uh, forces getting power greater than myself that restored me to some kind of sanity to get me to today. And, you know, as, as my journey continues, you know, working with the sufferers, uh, you know, I, I try to project humanity back to people. I try to let people know that it's okay to be who you are and be where you are, you know, and, and, and what we can do together is get you out of there. You know, if you, if you trust the fact and you trust the process, you know, we can take a step out of the traumatic places that we find ourselves in. And, and when I say we, I always refer to myself as we, because I am a recovering addict. I'm still a Narcotics Anonymous guy. I still do the steps. And, and, and uh, coincidentally, I just came off a spiritual retreat of five days up in Mount Charleston in the mountains with, with a, a, about 30 men. We just went up there and we processed and we talked about things and we, you know, brung each other peace and, you know, was able to get vulnerable with other men. And that's something I never ever found myself being able to do, you know, but it's okay now, you know, to cry and talk about things and process things. And, and uh, it made me feel like I'm okay, you know, to be able to trust other people that I never, ever would have thought about trusting in my life. Cause you know, being in prison, you know, man, you don't trust people and, you know, being homeless and, and on drugs, you know, it's about me, you know, what can I do to you? So uh, I'm grateful, thankful. And, and I'm so appreciative that you, said hey let's talk so thank you well, i think you're more than okay uh, dominique i think you're an, an example and and um and someone who does good for the world now through your suffering story, story. right you know it, it was intriguing for me to hear that you're a, a nicu graduate um from an opioid baby so when you were born you were withdrawing you were born withdrawing to opiates mm -hmm. do you have I mean, obviously, I have no recollection as an infant, but as a child or no, how did you even come about to know that that was? Through my grandparents, through my grandparents. And uh, I did some research and found out, like, when I was born at, uh, at Kaiser, I mean, at uh, Mount Zion Hospital in San Francisco. And I did some research and found out, like, what, what happened to me when I was born. And it was a process through my recovery, through the 12 steps process to find out your, your history. And then my mother was brave enough to tell me. You know, and, and my mother, my, my father uh, was an opiate addict for probably 35, 40 years. Uh, he has HIV and hep C now. I mean, but he's undetected, he's fine. And my mother, she lives in Las Vegas now. I visited her at the same time I went on my retreat and she's fine. You know, she still does what she does, goes to bingo, have a drink, but she doesn't use opiates no more. And she, we had long heart to heart talks, you know, and found forgiveness because for a long time I was angry. I was, I was very angry and, and very standoffish with my mom because of, you know, like, how could you do this to me? But in retrospect, I had to remember, I have a 29-year-old and a 27-year-old son and daughter that through my addiction, they were mistreated, they were neglected. So that made me get a better understanding of, okay, why this happens. So I had to find forgiveness for my mom because here I am repeating the same thing at a certain point in my life to my children. So. Uh, she told me all about it and she, you know, and she was, you know, so, uh, so sad that we had to have this conversation. But I said, mom, it's, it's, it's good for you and me. You know, let's, let's get to the truth and let's talk about these things. Cause I forgive you. 
with my mom, you know? So it, it was it was a beautiful experience. It, it is, and it's, I love the, how it's multi-generation. Like, please right. forgive, I forgive you, and may my kids please forgive me, right? right? right. We all have right. that, right? It doesn't have to be for addiction. It could be like whatever right. I've done to my kids, right? Trauma is trauma. Right. You know, you know trauma is, is really heavy. And, and, you know, especially in black communities, and I'm not saying that negates other communities, but, you know, we, we, we find this as these underprivileged and underserved communities, because I, I come from Hunters Point in San Francisco. It's really an underserved community. And, and these things happen, and this is the norm of hurt people hurt people is just the way things work, you know, so. How old were you when you, okay, so you, you, you were this NICU baby. You didn't know. How old when you started using drugs? 14. 14. 14. And 13, what, did you start, what did you start using? 13. Well, at 13, I started drinking because I got, I, I got shipped off to Louisiana because I was so rebellious in California. My grandmother sent me off to Louisiana to stay with my uh, disciplinarian-type aunt. And me and my cousin used to drink. So that's the first time I experienced hangovers and, and throwing up the next day and stuff like that. But it wasn't smoking marijuana or anything. When I got back to California, like at 14, 15, you know, it started with marijuana. And then I called myself being this drug Caesar, snorting cocaine and Tony Montana. And, and I never looked back. I just never looked back. Once I started, I was off to the races, you know. And, and it, it's, you know, after doing, you know, a lot of work with myself, I'm not, you know, I come from a very addictive-minded, you know, personality-type family, you know, because it runs rabbit through my whole family, you know, so. Yeah. And you said you had um, a few encounters, you said, with the, with the justice system in jail. Tell us, <laughs> tell us about that. Is, is it bad? Well, is it an opportunity? Did it, on one point it helped you, but on the other point, did you like learn more drugs and more things or what, system, what is your perspective on that? Well, my perspective on the system, it is uh, throughout my life, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, all the way up to 29, I was just in and out of the system. And I would use it as a place to rehabilitate, get my weight back up, get my senses back so I can go back out to use again. So I can't say that the system really damaged me. I think I used the system to get myself better so I could do more damage to myself. Because I believe that if you want to what do you, change- What do you mean by that? I don't- What do you, what do you mean by, by what? Like you use the system to damage yourself. So I would use it as a vacation. Like I would go get myself back healthy because you have drugs and you would lose all your weight. You would get unhealthy. So I would go back, eat, get healthy enough to get back out there and do the same things over. The same cycle. The same Relapsing cycle. Go back, disease. rest. Do it again. So you'd oh, get yes. sober oh, yes. in jail, yeah. healthy in jail, and then yeah. go out. Go right back out to use drugs again. It, it never failed. It Did, never. Were you ever given opportunity to like, hey, this is how to stop in jail? Yeah, there were there were a lot of treatment programs. And, and at that time in my life, I just used the programs we had just to get out my cell, just to socialize with other people, not to do the work on myself. So I can't say that prison didn't afford me things to get myself better because there were a lot of people coming in from the outside with different reentry programs and things like that. Uh, Narcotics Anonymous groups, AA meetings. They had a lot of things going on in prison. But was I using it for the right reason? No. No, never. I never thought about trying to get better until one day. Were you, were you like, I think of jail as a scary place. Mm -hmm. were, you, were you scared or you were like, oh, no, here, here we go again. You became familiar to you. 
No, it became familiar to me. It became like I was okay. I, I found comfort in uh, controlled environments. You know, uh, violence wasn't a second nature to me. It was something that I participated in. So it wasn't unnormal to me for fights, for people running around with shanks made out of uh, plastic deodorant bottles. And, you know, it was just, it was, an, it, no, it was some insane things like that we create weapons out of, you know, uh, taking a speed stick and melting it down and, and turning it into a shank. So things were really, we're very creative there. I mean, very creative the way we make the way we cook and the way we make skillets and, and hot water pots. And it's just, it's so much talent. <laughs> you find so much talent and ingenuity of type of things that we can do in there or, or well, I can say they can do it in there because I don't do it. <laughs> How many times were you in jail? So, yeah. Uh, I was in jail every day, every year of my life, 1984 to 1999. Every year I was in somebody's prison. So what happened? What changed? Uh, January 7th, uh, about 10 a.m., uh, I had, a, I had, a, I came to, I had to come to Jesus talk in the park. And, and, you know, and I called out to, I called out to the spirits. I said, look, if, if you're really real, you're going to help me stop this. If, if, if the God that they talk about, that my grandmother talk about, that, that she pray upon is, if you're really real, you're going to stop this right now. And, and you got to be careful what you pray for. Because as I prayed for this, I had this, I, I, I began to get this warm feeling to where I was safe. And, and, I, and I cried as if I was a baby. And I passed out in the street. And the San Francisco Police Department came to wake me up. And as they woke me up, the police, all the police in my neighborhood knew me because I had been in my community all my life and been doing things. And uh, I went back to San Quentin. And that was January 7th, 1999. I went back and I had an 11th month violation. So I stayed there from January to December. And December, December 7th, I paroled. And I went to the parole department in San Francisco and asked them to put me in treatment because in that, in that period of me being in prison that time, my grandmother had died and she was the only person that really was a place for me to go, a refuge. Somebody that still loved me because everybody else had left me, left me alone. I was so destructive. And uh, my grandmother died. So I was really homeless and really without anybody. And so I, uh, uh, my parole officer wouldn't put me in treatment because they had invested in me so many times. And he said, now, every time we put you in treatment, you, you run away. And I was like, no, I really want help this time. I, I really want help. And so I would go to my parole office every day for like a month. My word every other day. And one day the supervisor was there. He said, hey, why do you come here every day? I say, because I just want to go to a program. And he finally put me back in a program. And, and the ironic thing about it is he put me back in a program on the same street I passed out on, my last arrest. I ended up going in a positive direction, which is a, a program in the Black community ran by some Delancey Street, all Delancey Street graduates. So, you know, they really like serious. You know how Delancey Street therapeutic model work. It's like, they, they, they're really tough on me. So I ended up going back there and ended up staying there for three years from, uh, from 1999 to 2000. I left in 2004 and I still wasn't sure of what I wanted to do with my life, you know? And if, if uh, I ended up going to City College in San Francisco only to get a financial aid check. I only enrolled in school to get financial aid. And then there was this lady named Cindy Harrison who was a teacher and one day she came to me and she said, hey, I can see you struggling. If you allow me to, I'll help you. And I think that's the first time in my life that I really dropped all my guards and trusted someone. 
And here it was, this was a Caucasian lady who rode bulls on the weekend and she was a lesbian. So, and I was a guy from, and I was a guy from the hood. So what do we have in common? You know, it, it, it was, it was such a blessing. And she's still my best friend today. We still talk all the time. She teaches Arizona State. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it's, it's just, it's so many great things that happened to me in my journey that got me to today. And, and, and I can't say it's me because I allow everybody to help me. You know, my journey is everybody's journey. Who's, who's, who's came across my life, you're part of this journey. And, and, and I'm grateful to be in a position to where people like me. You know, that, it feels good. It feels good for people to like you and, and genuine, you know? Yeah. So that's a short snap of my life. That's amazing. And, and um, anything you would, anything you would change, looking back at your life, do you, is there something like, oh, if only, you know, I was given this opportunity or, or it's just, is there anything, because we're going to ask you about how do, how do you prevent? So if you were the prevention specialist in your own life, mm -hmm. what would you have talked, what have you told your, your younger self? Uh, that's a tough one. Because in hindsight, I look like if I wouldn't have had all the experiences that I had, I wouldn't be the man I am today. But I think there were so many opportunities for me not to destroy my life by so many people. And I never trusted the process. I never trusted anyone. So I think taking suggestions and trusting other people would be something that I would try to tell the next generation of people like, you know, trust the process, you know, take our experience and, and internalize it and try to understand how that would feel for you, you know, because there were so many programs and, 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 and people and family members that said, hey, man, you know, I can help you, but who wants help when, when, when I already know what I want to do? I already feel like I'm adult enough to make these decisions and I can make the greatest decisions to destroy myself. I don't need you to help me do that. So I think it was more of, I wasn't ready and I didn't have the intelligence or the, the maturity to, to look and say, hey, maybe I should stop this or maybe I should do something different, you know, to make my life better. So I think trusting the process and, 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 and finding a way to, to reach out to people to a better understanding. Interesting. Yeah. So Vic Victoria is a medical student and okay. She notices that people, many people who have a substance use disorder can be in denial. Like you've had many years of denial, right? Right. And, um, and so how do you reach people in that, in that state? When, when I work with people, with, with patients and, 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 and different people, like I own a sober living home and I work with a lot of guys. And I think I, I kind of reach their fear. So I think I work on their fear-based stuff first because I think denial runs alone right alongside their their fear can you explain that like for instance okay in society i think when we look at people that's suffering uh as a moral failure uh i know it's not an ethical lapse or it's not a weakness of character uh it's not a failure of will because i don't think anybody's able to will themselves out of addiction so if i if i already know these things because Here's two things. You have guilt and shame. So guilt tells me to tell myself I'm a bad person. That's what guilt does for me. And shame will tell me that you think I'm bad. So if I want to run away from those things and not face those things, I'm going to stay where I'm at. 
and you're all wrong and you're not telling me what's right and you're not kind of trying to tell me what to do or you can't help me because I, you know, they say, why do people use drugs? Why do people engage in addictions? Uh, it's emotional pain. I know I had a lot of emotional traumatic stuff that happened to me. And that's what I try to do when I work with people, especially when they're in denial. It's like, what's really, who are you? Like, tell me who you really are. Who are you before the addiction? Who are you without the addiction? You know, and I think we don't have enough time in the field. And I know you as, as, as doctors, you know, when doctors see patients, they have a certain amount of time. You know, it's on the clock when you're working in primary care. And I think doctors don't really have enough time to just find out what's emotionally going on with a person. Yeah. Because we, your time is up. We don't. Yeah, I know. So here's why I step in as the counselor, director of programs. I can work on those type of things to find out where your denial lies. Because it lies somewhere in your trauma. Because you, you're escaping. So I'm going to deny everything you're trying to do to help me. Because my escape... My escape hatch has been working for me all my life, you know, and, and, and another big thing that denial does for us is so many years that I use drugs, nothing really tragic happened to me to where I had to come to you and say, Rip, really help me. Because sometimes I walk into your office because I have an appointment just to see you because I may want something or uh, maybe the justice system or maybe just my family influencing me. Because a lot of addicts that's suffering don't walk in the door and say, help me. A lot of them are nudged some kind of way. Most of them. I'm not, there are some that, that really just say, okay, this is enough. So denial, denial is, 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 the, is my comfort. I find comfort in denial. So if I can break through, the, if I can emotionally find out who you are and why you, why you the way you are, then I can know where to work from, you know? Because we can all we can all sit here and say, "Oh, he's in denial. He's in not." Why? Let's find out why. You know, it's not the drugs. You know, people only use for two reasons. I feel that's to stop feeling something or start feeling something. You know, so let's figure out what that is, so I can get you out of those spaces. Oh, interesting. You're going to the root, the yeah. root of the problem. I'm, I'm trying to find out what's going, who you are, who you are, humanity. I'm, I'm big on humanity. I'm big on seeing past your disease. Like when new patients walk in my door, some of them are in, in withdrawal or really hurting, you know, really hurting. And that's a, that's a bad place to be. And when, when I get them stable enough to really want to sit down and have a conversation with me, that's when I have a conversation about, I don't want to talk about why you use drugs. Who are you? Tell me about what you used to do to have fun. What was your life like? you find out so much with those little conversations. And, and, and I was talking to my chief medical officer last week and my NP, I was like, I wish we had time. I wish you guys had time to just really find out about these patients. Cause I have to record information back to you about who this person really is, you know? And it, it's like, sometimes it's a disservice because doctors don't have enough time to really find out, you know? And, and you guys are doing the best you can. It's amazing jobs. But there's so much more that can happen. Right. We 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 don't. And especially I'm in the emergency department. I, I know that I don't have right. um the time. And these are actually my favorite patients because I right. feel like I could impact someone's life in a right. short or at least get them to think about um changing. Um and I see people and I don't know if you do too, when they're they're high and I tell them, This is not who you are. We need to clear your brain and find mm -hmm. out who you really are, because this mm -hmm. is not it. Right, exactly, exactly, and 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 those are the really, really delicate times, 
when, we, when we're working with people. And like, that's what I was saying, like a patient to come in and I'll give them a couple of days just to, you know, stabilize and, and settle in. Because here's the advantage that I feel I have. Like you as an emergency room doctor, you see a patient and they're probably going off to another primary care center or going off somewhere else. But I get, I get to keep them around for a little while. I get to find out, you know, and, and I, it's a trip because I listen to Gabor Mate a lot. That's that's my guy, right? Gabor Mate. And uh, it's something that he said that Najib Mahfouz said. He said, nothing records the effects of a sad life as more graphically as the human body. And it took me a while to think about like what that really meant. And the only way we see really tragedy is when, when people get hurt, like earthquakes and, and bad accidents and shootings and stuff like that. We see this tragedy and the tragedy of addiction is, you know, people die of heart disease, uh, suicide, uh, overdose and, and things like that. And it's, it's so tragic, the field that we work in and the patients we treat. And, I, and since COVID happened, I had two patients overdose and die, you know, off fentanyl. And yeah, and, and, and these were two patients that used to show up to group every week. And do, you, do you think that that could have been you? I mean, when oh, you yeah. were, that could have been you because you, at the time you were using, there wasn't that much fentanyl. So you could have thought that you were using cocaine and that, you know. I, th I, th I had a conversation with my friends, but I was like, man, we could have been dead. Because you get drugs and you go. You get your drugs and you go. We, ain't nobody do no fentanyl test trip. They barely do. People barely do that. You know, and uh, it's, it's, it's really a, a tragic time that we're in. It's like, uh, talked to uh, Dr. Hurley the other day, and we were talking about the doctors, about how heavy the load has been on doctors doing telehealth now. How heavy the load has gotten and how the patients uh, is getting more in tune with the doctors because any doc most patients can wait on a phone call, but we miss so much stuff now from our patients during telehealth because I don't get to see you walk in the office no more. I don't get to check in with you like I used to, and I don't get to find out what's been going on in your life for the last two weeks. And then, you know, people disappear and come back, and then you're like, oh, it's good to see you. And and the doctors are really bearing the load, making the phone calls now in these COVID times. And, and, and real good doctors are really, really, really great right now. It's really like, I'm really happy that we have great doctors that's holding, you guys are holding the load right now during telehealth. Oh, check you out. You're our fan. How cool is no, that? No, seriously. <laughs> Thank you, the, the support, The support that you used to get from nurses and, 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 and medical assistants to check on this patient and give you research, give you data on this patient, it, it doesn't happen no more. It's, it's changed. It's changed. Tell us about your practice. You work with the, you know, people who are high risk. And I mean, when you say high risk, I mean high risk of dying, of HIV, of hepatitis, who right. homeless. I, it, it, tell us about your patient population, the clients that you see. How do they uh, get to you? Uh, referrals, probation, uh, word of mouth. Uh, I just called the clinic and did referrals from my doctor, in-house referrals. Uh, recovery, we have recovery coaches in this county in Marin that really uh, shuffle patients our way. And uh, the detox. Uh, a lot of our patients are really... Uh, methamphetamine users and opiate users. If they're not on opiates, they're on the buprenorphine, they still tamper with the methamphetamine. Uh, so what I did is I 
as far as contingency management, what I started with is I started morphing contingency management into a MAP program. You know, I started letting them come in and I started doing the contingencies that way. Let's talk about that. So you're you so you have you know difficult um, patients with not mm -hmm. a lot of really the indigent is that right? Yeah. And then you offer them if they have opiate use disorder, you offer them MAT medication assistant treatment mm -hmm. buprenorphine. Yes. And if they have a methamphetamine use disorder, then you offer them contingency management. Yes, ma'am. What does that look like? Uh, what does it look like? It looks like a first of all, it looks like a busy week. Uh, well, let's so, say you have a client who's 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 using meth. What do you? How do you? How do you use uh, contingency management for that? Client? Oh, okay. Patient comes in with methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. use referred to me. Uh, I do a fifteen-minute intake with them. That's all I do is fifteen minutes. Uh, who, what, what, and how? That's what I find out. Those are those are basically the questions I ask, and I find out a few things about these patients. So what I use is a twelve-week cycle with, for contingency management. 12-week cycle, uh, one week it's uh, health. Next week, we talk about exercise. Some week we'll talk about the methamphetamine use. Sometimes we talk about social skills, job opportunities. With You know, I just make it a gamut of things, you know, and it's only, they only check in with me 15 minutes a week, twice a week. It's Tuesdays and Thursdays, they'll check in. Uh, I really, I, I kind of uh, hope they would check in once a week. Some of them don't make twice a week. But they, so when they make it twice a week, that's when they go to the grab basket. To, you know, when they come in on the Thursday, they get the basket. So that's that's their reward. If you yeah. come in, if they check with you twice a week, they get a reward. Twice what's, a week. What's in, what's in the basket? Uh, gift cards, Target cards, uh, Subway cards. Uh, sometimes I throw a Gap $50 card in there. It, they'd be sprinkled in there, just some from Gap. Coles, uh, $25 for Coles. But I, it's Safeway. Uh, all the cards, the cards, if they go to Safeway or Target, they can't buy alcohol with the cards, alcohol or cigarettes or tobacco. We make it like that. So, and when, when we do that, uh, they, they do that on a Thursday. And what I do is after your first three weeks, you successfully come in, then I make your urinalysis test uh, voluntary. I ask them, do you want to do your analysis test today? You say, no, that's cool. That's cool. And you still, you still reaching the basket, but you can't consecutively uh, refuse to do your analysis test. I'll give you a week where you say you can't. Next week you will. You know, so it's like I got this protocol. And lately, what how it's been working is other patients have been bringing other patients because I only do 15 per cycle. I just do 15 patients because it can get out of hand. You know, you know. So I kind of keep it small where I can really manage it. Because just me doing that, my nurse and my case manager only work with the MAP patients. So that's a whole different set of patients. That's uh, 167 patients. Those are, so you have 167 who have an opiate use disorder. Yeah, yeah, that's a MAP program. And I just work with a small 15 to 20 because I have five that's in like. Wait, do you get them jealous of each other? Like, hey, I have an opiate use disorder. I want a Coles card. You know, why no. is only the methamphetamine people getting a, or well, you do it for both? They never really cross paths. Okay. <laughs> they never really cross paths because the ones that are MAT and using opiates too, I mean, that, that are MAT patients that are using methamphetamines, I go a different route with them. I do more counseling with them, do more counseling with them. But if they, if they, if they, uh, uh, main diagnosis was methamphetamine use, then I will push them over to contingency management, but they have the opiate use disorder too. But, and I kind of give them a little leeway and, and work with them a little softly because you know, you came in here 
with opioid use disorder. You came in here with high-risk behaviors, using needles, uh, having unsafe sex, doing all those things. Not saying methamphetamine users don't use needles either, but I use a different protocol on the on the uh, medically assisted treatment side than the methamphetamine side. This methamphetamine side is more loose. It's more like you're dictating the program within a program. So you you're 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 the controller of your program, but you stay within this boundary of the program. You know, the the patients who have methamphetamine use disorder, do you see them having like the terrible teeth and heart disease and and um, you know, I, it's it's really I could tell by people's teeth that they've right. used meth at some point in their right. life. Or if I see a younger person, by younger I mean fifty or younger with heart mm -hmm. problems, it, it came from meth. And that's that's why I do a lot of health stuff. Like we have our dental team. What, what, one week, like one of those 12-week cycles, my dental team will come in, my dental director come in and do a hygiene uh, checkup with them. So I, I kind of incorporate that because that is a big thing. And, you know, and, it, and it's funny because once they get, once you get a smile, once you can feel confident about smiling, it means so much to a person. I've seen some contingency management programs that that's one of the rewards. Like, so instead of getting, you know, Kohl's card or Safeway mm -hmm. card, if it's like, okay, you stay, you know, clean urine for so many time, we'll get your teeth fixed. Right, right. Well, we're a primary care center, so it's like they can do that anyway. That's just, that's a plus. They can go to the dentist and they get, my nurse will give them first priority to dental appointments. If they, you know, but it's like we offer them these things, offer these things. Like, so they, they, that's not part of a contingency. You just get that? But you get, they get that anyway. They get that anyway. And uh, one thing we really require is like, what what the only thing can distort their program is them not getting their labs done. We're really big on you get getting to the labs because we used to do them in house, but since COVID we stopped. So now we got to send them out to get labs. So we I just came up with getting them transportation to get their labs. So I got another case manager to drive them to get their labs. So because we really want to know what's going on with the inside of your body. Right. And you're time. you're working in a medical clinic, so I hear you say yeah. you're working with nurses, whatever, and yeah. you are you're providing the peer support, and right. that's what Victoria, our, our medical student, uh, talked about. She works at a free clinic, and right. and you know, again, there's so much so much the doctor could do, right? What do we do? We prescribe medications, we order the lab, we we do some, you know, um, you know, encouragement, mm -hmm. but to get to the heart of the human being, like you said, that's right. where peer support comes. Yeah, I'm in FQHC. Yeah, I work with, I have, I have uh, two, three psych MPs, uh, two psychologists, a whole dental team, a health educator. I have case managers. I have whole person care. I have nurses. I have, I have my own mat nurse. She only works in mat department, so I don't have to worry about finding a nurse. Uh, I have, uh, three NPs, one chief medical officer, dental directors. So I have a whole gamut of people that I can reach out to when, when these people need help. So I, I think I'm lucky that way. I don't have to search out for stuff. Very nice. Yeah. And you're in Marin City, which is by San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and are, are you in touch with the homeless community there? Can you tell us what's going on in the streets? We hear you know, not such pretty things of what's happening in the streets of San Francisco now. Yeah, well, San Francisco, so we do have a site in San Francisco too. We got Baby Hunters Point Clinic, which is a satellite clinic. And we work with uh, a homeless agency called Mother Browns. 
where with their patients get straight referrals to our clinic. So they're a day service center where homeless people drop in and get fit and stuff like that. And if they want to see the doctor, they'll just get a straight referral to us to see for whatever situation they have. Uh, the homeless, so I'm not actually in the downtown San Francisco. I'm like in the Bayview district. So homelessness is different from if you get into the heart of San Francisco. It's like people aren't on the street like uh, using IV drugs on, in, in the community I'm in. But we have those type of uh, individuals in the community, but it's not as bad. But we, we're open to all underserved. We, we're underserved and underprivileged uh, community. And that's the kind of clinic we provide for that community. And it's, it's the Arthur H. Coleman building, which is a historical landmark now, because the doctor that the clinic is named after, he was the first black physician to come from down south to the baby community to provide service for the community. And it, he served in the community for like 25 years. He had black psychiatrists, black doctors, black x-ray techs, black dentists. It was a whole black clinic. It was, it was funny. And if you ever visit the clinic, you will see the historic the history on the wall, the pictures of him and all his doctors and stuff like that. So we just revamped it and made it another clinic for the community because, you know, every, everything else came in the community wasn't of, of the community, you know? So it's good to be familiar with, with who you're working with. And as far there's all sorts of drugs out there. And it's, uh, in one way, it's not even fair to, to say, like with these opioids or meth or alcohol or marijuana or different ones, but what is the primary drug of choice in your area or is it is it all of the above? It's all of the above, but I think the, the highest rated thing now is probably, if you look at, okay, let's look at age brackets. Let's mm -hmm. look at uh, 18 to 25, 18 to, 20, 18 to 30, Xanax. A lot of them are using benzos. A lot of them are benzodiazepines. If you look at the older crowd, probably over 45 to to own up, you probably think it's probably crack cocaine or either uh, uh, heroin. But in that 18 to 40 bracket, I think there's a lot of methamphetamine use too. Because methamphetamine turned to the new cocaine. You know, it's the new, it's the new cocaine. And now it's Xanax for the, for the younger generation, you know, that mid-generation. So it's a gamut of all of them. That's very scary because we know that there's a lot of fake Xanax pills that are actually fentanyl and people just drop dead. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. I've, I've, I got a family member that just experienced that. My little brother. What, Dominique? You lost I, your brother? No, I didn't lose him. Oh. I didn't lose him. He, he's in prison now. He's in the jail waiting going to prison because he took Xanax. And it wasn't fentanyl, but he had a blackout on Xanax and done some stuff that was just really bad. Well, his Xanax pill may have had fentanyl in it. Yeah, he. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the uh, lab results, but. I've had other friends that before we got into the fentanyl that took too much Xanax and they had this blackout, you know? So I'm thinking like he had the wrong Xanax. I don't know, could he could have had fentanyl in it, but you know, I tried to work with him, you know? So it's still hitting close to home. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's very hard. Um, yeah. And home, home, you know, you've got your brother, you mentioned what, and you said you have kids. What do you, what do you tell your kids? What is your? Uh, I have conversations with my younger ones because my older ones are 28, 29. So uh, they, they kind of live in their life. They, you know, they, you know, marijuana. their brain is done growing. <laughs> yeah, they marijuana, you know, marijuana is they thing. You know, just fine. Do what you do. Uh, my younger kids, I got a 12 year old, 12 year old son that uh, my wife, it's my wife's son, but he's my son. He's been with me all his, most of his life. 
like I, he hangs with me a lot. So he sees the work I do. He witnesses the work I do. And he always says, I don't ever want to do drugs. You know, he'll say those type of things. And I'll be like, yeah, because it's not going to get you nowhere. But I never really go in deep conversations with him because he's saying a lot and I'm letting his brain form into what he knows is right and wrong. And I think he has a very good conscience of what not to do. He's a very wise 12-year-old. And my four-year-old, he's just, he's, he runs the house. So he, <laughs> he runs the house. So I think the experiences that, that they're getting is, is seeing their dad and, and what I do and like who I work with. So I think he's seeing like, okay, this is what my dad does. He tries to help people fix things and, you know, so I really can't say that they actually, my young one actually gets it now. Yeah. You know, I, I you mentioned marijuana and um, I know that's a contentious issue uh, a lot of places, but I can't think of a single person who I met who uses fentanyl or overdose from fentanyl that didn't start with marijuana, not, not one. Right. Um, and, and I see, you know, just the other day I had a mom who called me and, and I, I, I had to take the call. Her son is in psychosis. He has cannabis use disorder. She's, you know, doesn't know how to help him. And it's really tragic. And on, and on the other hand, I hear people say, oh, it's not addictive. It's okay. Now, when you're working with people who are using IV drugs and they have meth and they're using opiates and everything else, you know, the last thing I'm going to bring up is marijuana. Like, okay, that's, uh, let's, let's try to save you, keep you alive first. Right. But on the other hand, we're talking about your four-year-old and your 12-year-old. If we don't want them to get on the path of addiction, right. I don't see how we can even talk about prevention without talking about marijuana. Exactly. What do you think? Exactly. No, exactly. Uh, uh, last summer, they had a, a program for the kids because we got a rec center by our clinic. And I was talking to the younger 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds. I was doing pre intervention classes with them, yeah. talking to them about what's their experience. Have you, you know, and, 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 and it's so funny because I would be in group with them. I'll say, This is between us. So your counselor won't know what we talk about. And a few of them told me, like, I smoked weed one time and, and I felt scared, you know. And I told them, like, These are the experiences of using substances. It's not who you are. It makes you act different. And, you know, other guys will get uh, information from youngsters that have done things. So I think uh, peer support of their age brackets that in, that are informed about these are the experiences, these are the bad experiences you can have. And then I gave my experience too about, I started smoking marijuana. I started from marijuana and I ended up in, marijuana took me to prison. You know, it, it took me. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, marijuana, marijuana took me prison. It took me through the whole route because it started me on a path to thinking like I was cool and I can get high and I can do all these things, and it turned into something bigger than I can handle. And and I tell them like, you you won't be able to handle this when it really grabs you, you know, because you you know addiction, man. You know, you these youngsters gotta have weed every day. They smoke weed like it's like it's oxygen, you know. And all we can tell them is like, look, these are the things that can happen to you. And it's really hard to convince them. Well, do and why is that hard to convince? Is it because they're getting from all around in the society, their peers and billboards and ads saying, hey, this is cool. This is good. And like, here's this one guy, this one old guy saying it's not good. It's normalized. It's been, it's been normalized. Smoking marijuana has been normalized. It's been normalized. And then when... It's say, oh, well, let's pass the bill. 
It's just, I was like, I was like, in my mind, I was like, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? Like, I, you know, but it's bigger than me, you know, but I don't think that they should have ever made legal. Oh, Dominique, I, I think your voice is so important. I think it's, it is bigger than all of us, but, yeah. but your one voice, you can make such a difference. Right, to, right. To have that coming from you and right. saying what you just did and letting people know. I think right. that's very powerful. Yeah, I, I just really, I really like, it was like a slap in my face because here I am, a recovering addict that worked so hard to get away from my disease. And you're saying it's okay, you're legalizing something that's highly addictive. Like who does that? Like what, what is that about? Like what is it's, this? Yeah, about? It's about follow the money, that's what yeah, it's about. Yeah, 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 we know the answer, but it's like, that's the value that uh, powers that be are bigger, bigger places and people, that's how they value humanity. Like humanity is, is not being validated, not being valued in certain situations because it is, follow the money. Like, okay, you're going to, so I don't know how, to, I don't even know how they, what made it, why they justified. I don't even care because it was, it's, it's, it's like a big mistake to me because now it's anybody can go in there and buy weed. Anybody can get a cannabis card. Like some people are like, I got a cannabis card. What doctor gave you that? Right. It's a joke. I feel it's a joke on my profession, that cannabis card. I'd disrespect, rather have it. Just make it legal. Just make it legal. <laughs> right. Don't pretend like it's, right. it's right. I mean, the, the, you know, the things we had to go through to become a doctor and to prescribe right. anything. And right. now like anybody can, right. I don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's. Uh, and I think they, I think it's going to, uh, and they're not going to understand, like, you know, we have these, this, this, this handful of people that say, oh, it's not a gateway drug. No, it is. It's proven. Yeah. Don't name one person. Name one person who uses fentanyl or overdose of fentanyl who didn't start at some yeah. point with marijuana. Yeah. Name one. I don't think there's yeah. one. No, but, but wait. It's a medicine. <laughs> right. But people who but people who say that are they it's it's more like it's a medicine. <laughs> they know it's a joke. Yeah, yeah. They know it's a joke. It's yeah. it was um But they, they found something to hide behind. See, that's the easy way to hide behind killing people off. And I think that it's, and tell me, you have more experiences, that that's harder to convince people that it's bad than, you know, cocaine or meth or fentanyl. People who are using those harder drugs, I think in their heart, they know that's not good. Right, right. But they, people no. who use marijuana, they think this is cool. It's okay. It's, it's okay. And, and, and like yesterday, like you see youngsters in the community smoking. I'd be like, man, why are you smoking weed, man? You know how you can still talk to them. Like, man, why are you smoking weed? Oh, man, it ain't, it's just a little weed, man. I just get high. It's cool, man. And you got older people that smoke. I, you know, I see somebody smoking around a kid one day. I was like, hey, why are you? I know it's not my business. I mean, you can do what you want, but why are you smoking around a kid? This is my medicine. Okay. All right. I can't argue with that. Did you hear about, this is a terrible case, but did you hear about the parents who were smoking in the front seat and they had a four-year-old in the back seat and they were, whatever, using their medicine? It's very sad because yeah. well, they also had a gun in the back seat. And yeah. as the parents were, or whoever was, I don't know if it was the parents, but whoever the adults were right. in, the, in the front seat, the kid got into the gun and shot himself and died. Wow. From, and then again, they're not. Like, there's, so, there's so much wrong in that scenario, but right. uh, the marijuana makes you like kind of not care. Right. That, yeah, um, that's you know, and and I don't know, cause 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 you know, I was talking to a patient the other day, and I was like, I asked him, did he know about Keith Richards, right? 
of the Rolling Stones, right? And I remember reading an excerpt in this book, and he said, like, he used to go through contortions not to be himself. And I was talking to this guy about it, and I, and I was asking him, I was like, how many days do you wake up and you and you get ready to use and you just want to get out of yourself? And I say, that's what this this famous guy that everybody thought was the greatest guy in the world, this is what he had to go through. So, and, and what I want to do is I want him to know that what you're doing doesn't make you this such a bad person because there's people that are idolized that suffer from the same thing you suffer from. And, you know, and like, don't feel like you're not worthy of the greatness that they have, you know, because, you know, it's, we all great, you know, and, and, and I talk to my, my patients and group, I like, I talk about their greatness, about, about how great you can really be. Like, and I, I learned so much about life from just some of these people about walks of life and, and, and your norms and, you know, your, your belief systems and, you know, and I challenge belief systems, you know, you know, I, I really believe in, in like challenging cognitive dissonance. I really believe in tampering with it because, you know, sometimes that gets us in trouble, you know, cause I was telling one guy, if, if I kept all my belief systems I had from prison, I'd be back in prison. If I held on to any of my systems that I had, like you bumped me when I'm walking down the hall, that's disrespect. That's, that's a fight right there. Like, you know, you, you just, just little things people can say it in this, it's like two different worlds. Like I've learned to adapt to different worlds. And I'm, I'm grateful that I've had these, like when the beginning we asked me, what can I change? I don't know how much I really can change because my experiences has taught me a lot, has brought me through a lot of dark places, you know, and, and, and I must admit that during my addiction, during my active using drugs, I'm grateful for those times. In my darkest times, you know, smoking crack cocaine may have saved me. It may have stopped me from killing somebody or killing myself. In my darkest time, my disease played a great part in my life, probably of saving my life. So I have to recognize that even though it was something bad, in my darkest times, if I didn't have drugs, what else would I have done? Yeah, I see that. But I'm thinking like, God, if you take that same Dominique and put them today, like fast forward, you may right. not be alive because right. you, you'd had that fentanyl and then you don't get a second and third chance. Right. That's right. what's right. different with this generation. Right. This right. generation, right. one mistake, just one mistake could be it. Right. 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 So that, that's what makes it so different today than right. it was even a few years ago. Valid point. Valid, very valid point because I could probably say I'd be, I'd be dead. I'd be dead if it was 10 years, well, probably 10 years ago. I'd be dead if I would have stopped when I stopped. And like I say, it was something bigger than me that got me to write this seat today. And I talked to him about the danger. And you know, I really talked to my patients about the dangers of of, you know, I bring out, you know, the pictures of what fentanyl looks like and how much will kill you. And like, this is all it takes. It's not like the old days, but, you know, and, and it's, it's, I never can wrap my mind around when somebody would have enough drugs to kill a person. That's where everybody wants to go. That's where yeah. everybody wants to go. Well, that's, that's what addiction is, huh? Yeah, you, yeah. You, you do it even though you know you could die. Or it's you the, are in such power. a bad place that you don't mind. I think it's the power mm -hmm. of addiction. 
yeah. it's the power. Yeah. You know, addiction is here, but it's, it's the powerfulness. The, the, the powerfulness of addiction is vicious. That makes you sell your children. It makes you rob your mama. It makes you, you know, the power of addiction. You know, addiction standing still, really, what does it do? Not too much. A, a addiction without any power. You know, because I'm I'm an addict without any power right now. I'm an addict, but I'm I don't I don't give it the power no more. But if I if you know, and I always tell people, you know, don't think I'm I'm uh invincible. I don't feel like I'm invincible. I know that I do daily maintenance. I, I have a daily reprieve. I wake up every morning, I say, God, help me help somebody today. Help me get out of myself today. Because it's not about me, because I know how to be a self-centered human being. I know how to be an addict. That, that's, you know, it's something that I will, I will always forever know that's been a part of me. But I don't, I don't like him. See, I, I know that I don't like him, but I know who he is. You know, I think you, you, you demonstrate something I've noticed in anybody who's like really have gone through all the steps of recovery is uh, they're just a nicer human being and they care about more than just themselves. And, and really, frankly, some, some people who don't have substance use disorder should go through that and become nicer human beings. I think that too all the time. I think that too all the time because like at work, I, you know, I deal with, you know, different practitioners and different counselors and, 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 and whoever. And I see some people and I was like, in my mind, I'd be like, you, you need to try 12 steps. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, you, For you, something. <laughs> you need to do a step four or something. You need to find out what you're angry at and find out something. But I do my, you know, I do my amends every day. I, every night before I go to sleep, I try to go back through my day and see how I offended somebody. I'm not perfect. I, some nights I forget, but I, if something really happened, I'll remember. But like, I try to go through the day and, 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 and realize what I've done that was worth something that meant something to somebody else besides myself, you know, because that's what it's about. Cause you know, that's how I, I keep going, you know, that's beautiful. Yeah. I, it is beautiful. It's, and just, I'll share, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and, but every morning I say the prayer and before I go mm -hmm. to bed, I say the same, you know, our, our, our Hebrew prayer, but it's, it's the same kind of yeah. concept, right? You want to be better. Mm -hmm. So I love that. That's, that's uh, cool. That's what it's about. Yeah. You you do other special things that we just want to share with uh, our high truth listeners. You do relapse prevention, right? So yeah. addiction is a chronic disease. That means right. you have it forever. Like, you know, you have your high blood pressure, diabetes forever. Um, so you're maybe good today, but how are you going to make sure you don't relapse tomorrow? Right. I, I, I was trained in the Gorski synapse models. So I do like... And we don't know what that is. So you have oh, to Gorski, tell us Gorski is. synapse is, is the trainer. He's Gorski... Uh, uh, Anything was first name, but it's Gorski Synapse is the training you go through. And what they really teach is based on relapse roadmaps. So say I have a patient come in that's been doing good for seven months and then he have a, a drastic relapse. So what I would do with that patient, I was do a, I would do a relapse roadmap with him. And I would use a big whiteboard. And I would I would go back months and I would talk about, I would have them talk about their life. We would do a map of their life all the way till they got to their relapse. And in between their relapse and, and when everything was fine, you'll find out something that happened. Because relapse is, a, is an event. You know, it takes an event to have a relapse, you know, behavior, petty permissions, lying, cheating, stealing, not going to meetings, uh, not meeting with your sponsor, 
uh, just petty, bad behavior. Bad behavior is, of course, to relapse. So I would do those things. And uh, uh, I do conflict resolution. I'm certified in anger management. So yeah, I, I want to I wanna hear more about that. What's So So you told us what a relapse management is. It's kind of like road mapping and understanding yeah. the trigger. And so that next time it happens, you you would know what to do before it happens. You'd be aware. Yeah. Yeah, and and then anger management. So you seem like you seem like a mellow guy, right? Yeah. But I bet that at some point in your wife, you kind of describe yourself that you were. <laughs> was it? So you understand? I guess you know what anger is. Yeah. What? So tell us how how was that a? It sounds like for some people that's an important part of recovery. Especially, especially for uh, uh, men. No, no. I found that more women have been. In, in my program has been successful, been wanting to learn more about anger management. And then you find out about that they didn't realize how angry of a person they were during their addiction to their mate, to their children, to their parents. You know, cause what I found like is most men that I've dealt with, they, they become journeymen, they get away from everybody. You know, they don't torture the, in, the inner circle. Women have children that they stay around. They don't, women, men abandon their children more than women during addiction. And the, the women find out that they've been angry and, and mean to people close to them, their spouses, their children and stuff like that. And, they, and those are the things we talk about. And I really don't do actually like, this is not an anger management course, but I kind of morph anger management into the groups, like in conflict resolution, like, you know, somebody might say, hey, I, my mom keeps getting on my nerves. She keeps thinking I'm not using and stuff like this. Well, how do you resolve that conflict? How, what, what route do you take? How do you, because I think recovery is not proven to somebody that I'm not using. I always tell people, recovery is not proving to someone that you're not using. Recovery is only doing the next right thing. That's what recovery is based on. People are going to feel that we're going to feel. And it's ironic because I still go back into my old community. And I'll see people that I haven't seen since I got clean. You know what they ask me? People still ask me, when do you get out of prison? Like, what? Like, really? Like, people still think you're who you are. It takes a lot to change people because people, and, and the reason these people ain't seen me because I'm not where you are and you're not where I'm at. If you need to see me, you need to be somewhere where recovery is happening. So we probably won't see each other. And when we see each other, it's probably on a fluke. Andy, when you got out of prison? I've been in prison a long time, my guy. So, <laughs> like, you know, or you hear people say, oh, I heard about you. Man, good. I'm glad you don't. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. But uh, anger, anger, you know, anger is a, is, a, is a real emotion that we go to. You know, we can go. Anger is comfortable. Anger is comfortable, especially when you're off balance, especially when your life is unbalanced, especially when you're not in a happy place, especially when you're not comfortable. So in people going through recovery, a lot of times they're in uncomfortable spaces, you know, and especially for their first few months, it's uncomfortable. And, you know, six months, when, I think when a person gets to six months, that's, for me, that's the most dangerous place. Because in six months, people do this. You probably got a girlfriend or boyfriend. You probably got a job. You probably got a place to live. And you probably got a car. Six months. People search for these things in six months because that normalizes me. I'm normal. Okay, I got a girlfriend, a boyfriend like everybody else. I got a job, I got a place to live, and I got a car. So I'm, I feel like I'm a part of society again. These these, these things that are materialistic and, and some of them are tangible in good ways. And then we forget. 
the, the journey that got us there, the hard work that we put in to achieve these things. And I get, I settle down. And the things that I've done and got there aren't that important no more. So I find myself under my own devices. I find myself vulnerable to my disease again because I'm not working on things to get me away from the disease. You know, so I try to talk to people when they get in there that five, six months and, you know, I just got a job. I'm working here. Okay, this is time for go to more meetings now. This is the time when you should be talking about how you're feeling every day a little bit more. Because, you know, this one chinks get in your armor where cracks start coming, you know. And I've experienced this because I try recovery a lot of times before. Well, I, I don't even know if I call it recovery. I tried to just not use drugs, you know, because the first time I got into the program of any anonymous, dude told me to do these steps and I read it all and I came back the next day and said, I've done that. You know, I like, you like, okay, dude, you know, but now my, my model today is you can go to CA, AA, NA, anything to keep you away from the DA. <laughs> it's, it's fine with me. Yeah. I don't care what A you go to, you know, Sex Anonymous, I got some guys that, like, I, I don't sponsor anybody right now because my life is too full. I got children, sober living, homework. So, and I can't dedicate myself to somebody because I know a sponsor, I'm supposed to be there for you. And I can't half measures avail me nothing. I'm not going to half measure with you. Yeah. Well, you're helping populations now, you know, instead of, instead of individuals, you right. know, one-on-one -on -one like that. Thank so, you. <laughs> so I think you're already, you, you could check that off. <laughs> right, 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 right. I never looked right. at it that way. Like that's, that's okay. You more, okay, cool. Thank you. you. You are, you're, I mean, when you grow to, to, to bigger, you, you could help on a wider scale, right? Instead right. of one, one-on-one. -on -one. So you're, you're doing that and you're helping other people do one-on-one, -on -one, right? You're teaching right. other people to do that too. So you're, right. yeah. So yeah. you're, you're doing that. If you, you know, looking at where you grew up in your, in, in, you know, black community, if you could make changes, is there anything else that, that you know, if you had like a magic wand, what, what would it be to help your community? I, I would put trust back in the communities. I, I put, how, how do you do that? Uh, hmm, that's a good one. When I say trust, what I mean is, is uh, helping the community build itself into making resources and, 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 and things accessible for people to get better. Like uh, in, a, in a perfect world, in a, in a black community that's, that's, that's really on the brink of, of, of uh, really bad things happening, uh, like these real bad communities, like I would like to see like therapists, psychologists, and, and people be there in the midst of it. In the you know, schools? In, in, the, in schools? the schools, in the community centers, or even, like, what if we could do, what if it was really safe enough and trusting enough for us to do house visits? By who? By who? To... I just, by just therapists, people to talk to, people, people, I mean, just, I'm not just saying therapists, counselors, and, and doctors, and, and, and just peer support, you know, like, things like that, like, like, my sister is in Georgia, in Douglasville, Georgia. And she uh, works for DOJ and she's doing like 50 something counties. And my sister's goal is to buy like a certain area to make it a recovery community. That's what she's, she's working with some other people and investors. She's trying to buy up so much property to where there'd be so many blocks of recovery community and, 
and where to work for itself and, and build itself. And it's a big dream she have. But I've watched her start with one building in one county and go up to like 47 counties. So I know she's goal oriented. And like, I, think, I can see this picture like, we need us to help us. And, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying you gotta be black to help black. I'm saying we need us with experience and us that caring people. Cause there's some people that work in these fields. That's not great people. You know, just like, you know, that's not great doctors. There's some doctors that like, okay, where'd you come from? <laughs> you know, but I think the, the, the caring concern and the, and, the, and the intimate and the intimate relationships that we can have with people where people would know that, hey, I can go to Dr. Lev and, and, and I can really get supported in these things. And, and judgment is bad, stigma, stigma. We talk about people are so stigmatized to where they don't want to go get help, you know. And but I really think how, how we're working in this field and how just the medical field and the and the, and the, and the social service field is working around stigma. You know, everybody knows stigma is real. You know, I think we're starting to see it for what it is, and the language and the and the uh, the way we work with people is becoming really it's, it's starting to shave stigma out the way. I'm starting to really see it. Because don't nobody want to be labeled as a person stigmatizing people. It's kind of like a shameful thing now. It's kind of like a shameful thing to be a stigmatizing practitioner or counselor or something like that, you know. And, and I was working with a, a lady at the detox the other day, and she's writing papers. She's like, well, medical assisted treatment, I really feel like that's not a good thing. And I say, why? And I asked her why. I say, why do you feel like a person having medications to stop them to help them not to do destructive behaviors. So when people just, they just addicted to something else. Oh, you're, you're misinformed. You, you're misinformed. And I say, I say, I, I would hate for you to misinform some of these patients and clients. I would hate for you to be something that stopped them from getting to where they are. And I had a small conversation with her, but she was stuck where she was stuck at. And that's okay. But I think the good thing about it was I was able to confront her and let her know, like, that's not okay. Right. And everybody has to hear that for the first time, right? Right. So right. she did. So, right. right. I mean, like, because that that is the old thinking. So if that's the first time, you may have been the first one who introduced mm -hmm. her to that and she'll keep thinking about it, right? Right. right. And, and um, you know, we're, we're treating addiction as a medical disease, like any, like asthma or diabetes or COVID or any, right. you know, you know, right. we're, we're providing treatment. It's a relapsing, treatable brain disorder, right? And, and I also think like, like just society and the world, they're morphing out of, out of the criminalized part of it. You know, because, you know, at one point, you know, being, being addicted to drugs was like, it was, it was criminalized for such a long time. Now I think we're morphing out of that. It's, it's slowly, I'm slowly watching how there's so many uh, people at high standards talking about, hey, we need to put money in this. And, and, and that's but I'm wondering if you'll agree with me, and you're someone who's been in jail a million times, not million, but a lot, you know what it's like. I don't even know what it's like. Mm -hmm. But we've made it, have we gone too far where we're letting people not using the legal system to get treatment, to push people into treatment? Not to punish you for having drugs or using right. drugs, but using the justice system to like, listen, to keep you alive. I think, I think in some cases, I think they still should. Right. I think the justice system should, should intervene on some people. Like you see with Governor Newsom, this passed a new bill, right? Uh, what's it called? Court 
from some court that coming out in San Francisco. Have you I, seen it? I don't know. No, I have to look into that. Oh, looking at the new court they got for the mental, mental, people with mental illness walking the streets of San Francisco. They're going to engage them with counselors and they're going to go in front of this, some kind of court and okay. they're going to, it's like forced into treatment. Now, I don't like the force to the treatment. Now, I feel if a person can't take care of themselves and need to be conserved or something like that, yeah, get them in the treatment. But there's some people that's not going to be, it's not going to work. So I think that's, it's kind of a gamble. Like, but it's something, I, I, I just seen it on the news last night and they really didn't talk about all the procedures of it, but that's the way the news proceeded it as. They're going to have this team that's going to force people because the homeless thing in San Francisco is at such a bad level. But it's no different from what it's been for the last 20 years. It's just fentanyl is coming and people are there finding people dead on the streets now. Right. It's very scary. Yeah, it's scary now. It's getting scary now. But people have been doing the same thing for 20-something years. When I used to be running the tunnel line, it was the same thing. It's just we didn't have drugs that was killing us. Right. That's so the now, game changer. That's the game changer. There's deaths happening now. And people are going really, really, really crazy now. You know, it's, it's, it's a different now. Yeah. And I feel like for safety, yeah, do, do whatever, get the streets safe again. Cause that, you know, that's, it's San Francisco. It's anywhere. Well, that's, let's, say, let's say you came in whatever crime you committed, you know, back in the day. And, mm -hmm. and we gave you a choice of like, uh, you could either go to treatment or you go back to jail. What would you choose? Like in those days in, in your young Dominique. I would self. probably choose treatment. I would have chose treatment now. Now, had I participated and got something out of treatment, I don't know. But I would have never chose to go back to jail. Because, but jail was mostly the only option I had at that time. Like at that time, then they started doing 30 day dry outs when you gave an uh, uh, unfavorable urinalysis test to your parole officer. You would do a 30 day dry out. But 30 days, I go right back out there and do the same thing. And then I'd upscale and you'd find me a year or two later. So, I mean, but I would always chose treatment. Like, any, don't nobody really want to go be locked up in those cells. Right. That was my only option because I misused the system and the treatment channels so much to where uh, you know, I just sent them back to jail. So, yeah, I think most people would choose going to a program. Now, if I do the program, you can go to a program, but where are you going to do the program? Mm -hmm. That's, That's the difference. That's the difference. Yeah. yeah. I think that's amazing. I, I, I'm so, um, so inspired by you and how you're um, changing your life around making the world, you're making the world a better place, Dominique. And I thank you for that. Um, what is your uh, advice to our young medical student, Victoria Grossberg? Sounds like she may be a future addiction medicine doctor. What's your advice to her? What's her name? Victoria? Victoria. Well, Victoria, what I, what I, what, what I could say to you is, I think you can always remember when, when you're dealing with a patient that the most devastating light wounds that they have are invisible. The most devastating thing about when a person walks in your office and they're just on, on drugs or doing or acting erratic, they have invisible wounds that you're not able to see. Uh, always remember that they're suffering, you know? This, this disease, it, 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 it multiplies suffering times a million. It, it makes you suffer, you suffer, you suffer. And everybody that walks through your door that's suffering from this disease is suffering way more than they're showing, you know? And it's up to us to at least give them some kind of stem of hope somewhere, you know? There's anything you do that's hopeful to a person, you know? Because people, 
I let people come in and out of my program. There's no way, you, you never can get kicked out of here unless you do something about it. And people leave and come back and they come back and they come back. I'll be like, man, I've been waiting for you to come back. Where you been? You all right? You know, it's always the same. You know, it's never like you can't come back. And I, I want you to come back. And I want people, I want people to know that I'm not just trying to, I can't solve your problem. What I can do is I can walk by your side and we can figure it out. I can try to help you figure it out. And if you ask me to help you, I'm going to be there for you. And that's, that's what's important, you know. That's beautiful. That's I'm going to remember that. I think you taught me something, Dominique. I'm going to, I'm going to notice people or ask people about their invisible wounds. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I like that. Yeah. Um, I want to say thank you to Victoria Grossberg. I wish you the best of success in the very noble right. profession of medicine. That's it's right. a long, difficult road, but with the great <laughs> attitude, which I see that you have, you're going to have a very fulfilling career. I love and I'm very proud of medicine after over 30 years. And I have a shout out to Dr. Nathan Painter, who promoted High Truth to his students. And he even assigned homework to listen wow. um, to the podcast. So, Dominique, maybe you're going to be a homework assignment for someone. Isn't that going to be well, I cool? Hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Make sure you get an A. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I say thank you, Dr. Painter. And thank you, Dominique McDowell, for your thank incredible you. insights, sharing successful experiences um, with us, a lot of uh, life lessons learned, humanity um, learned, um, appreciating people's invisible wounds, giving people hope. Um, I've learned a lot from you, and I really I wish you the best of success that you can have for yourself, your family, and your clients. Thank you so much. I, I, I graciously appreciate this opportunity, and uh, I'm glad I met you, you know. If I ever need some help, I will email you. At your service. I will, I will email uh, you. So. Yeah, I am. I'm going to reach out to you, too, because we have a, um, a marijuana bill. And I think that it'll be important for people to hear from you that, the, you know, to have warnings. Like if you're going to smoke cigarettes, you know, go ahead. You know, if you're going to drink alcohol, go ahead. You know the risk. Yeah. People are using marijuana. They don't know. They don't know it can cause psychosis and suicides or cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. They just need to know. Mm -hmm. We're not. Right. So. Right. OK. Just let me know. I would love that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate this. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.